is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. It's an understatement to say the cacao supply chain has some problems, and has since European colonizers first arrived in Central America centuries ago. If you love bean-to-bar chocolate, you're probably keenly aware of the economic, ecological, and labor abuses of the global cacao trade. It is imperative to understand where and how the cacao in the chocolate you're purchasing was sourced. But sitting here in western Ohio, I don't have the resources, time, or knowledge to go investigate cacao sourcing at origin for every single chocolate maker whose chocolate I might want to enjoy. I have to read a maker's own account of their sourcing, sometimes read between the lines, and decide if what I'm being told passes muster or not. It helps a lot to be able to trust certain names and develop relationships that allow me to proceed with confidence. Uncommon Cacao is a name I've learned to trust, and one familiar to most of us who love craft chocolate. Uncommon is the largest supplier of traceable, transparently sourced cacao for bean-to-bar chocolate makers. Today we're going to talk with Emily Stone, Uncommon Cacao's founder, about the challenges and rewards of sourcing cacao the right way, and the stories that take a complex web of information and give it a human face. This episode, we'll talk with Emily Stone, the founder and CEO of Uncommon Cacao, a group of transparent trade cacao operations with offices in the U.S. and Europe and operations at numerous cacao origins. Uncommon supplies cacao for hundreds of bean-to-bar chocolate makers and, indirectly through their bean-to-bar partners, quite a few craft breweries as well. Emily is passionate about the people and stories behind these cacao origins, and here we talk about those origins, what led Emily to start Uncommon, and the importance of full two-way transparency in the cacao supply chain. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. job that day and a couple weeks later Alex and I were on a plane to Belize to start figuring out how we could basically work alongside producers to help them uh, improve the quality and consistency of cacao to access these higher value markets like Taza and that would pay higher prices for their product. That's Emily Stone, founder and CEO of Uncommon Cacao, talking about the moment she decided to begin a new career helping cacao farmers get a fair price for their product and helping bean-to-bar chocolate makers source and purchase quality cacao with confidence. She had previously worked in environmentally responsible finance, helping publicly traded companies see environmental and social issues through a lens of financial and shareholder risk. One of those projects involved Hershey's, and it was there she first became aware of problems in the cacao trade and first thought about where chocolate really comes from. That led to spending time at Taza Chocolate in Massachusetts in 2010. 
There, she learned from founder Alex Whitmore about the chocolate-making process and, most importantly, the challenges of sourcing cacao while helping the people who grow and harvest it. Here, she tells the story that led her from those early conversations to founding what would eventually become Uncommon Cacao. I started Googling, and um, that Googling ended up uh, landing me in the factory of Taza Chocolate in sort of mid-2010. And I sat down with Alex Whitmore, who was the founder of Taza Chocolate, and I wanted to learn from him, you know, how Taza's sourcing practices were different. They were very much in the sort of pioneer stage of the budding bean-to-bar chocolate movement in the U.S., and Taza had a lot of communication around going beyond fair trade certification, using more of a direct trade approach, working with producers, and really focusing on quality and paying higher prices for better quality. So I loved what they were doing. And um, Alex mentioned that he had recently been down to Belize and had uh, met with cacao producers there that were essentially sort of locked into a monopoly of a 25 year arrangement with Mondelez that had started as a really nice sort of small producing country working with a small chocolate company, Green and Blacks at the time was uh, the first ever organic chocolate company. That relationship had developed into, uh, you know, Green and Blacks being acquired by Cadmary's and then Kraft and then turning into Mondelez. And so, you know, basically these cacao producers in Belize were selling what had the potential to be excellent quality cacao to a commodity buyer that was paying them just standard, you know, certified organic fair trade prices, but very low compared to what other producers of higher quality were being paid uh, elsewhere in the world. And so Alex was really interested in buying cacao from Belize. I was really interested in getting involved in the industry. And so I quit my job that day. And a couple of weeks later, Alex and I were on a plane to Belize to start figuring out how we could basically work alongside producers to help them uh, improve the quality and consistency of cacao to access these higher value markets like Taza and that would pay higher prices for their product. Um, So that was how it all got started. That was in October of 2010 was when I eventually um, ended up moving to Belize. And, you know, the original idea with my mountain cacao in Belize, which was Uncommon Cacao's first company, uh, it's still part of the Uncommon Cacao Group, is was really to introduce the innovation of centralized post-harvest fermentation and drying. When I moved to Belize, all of the producers were still fermenting and drying at home, uh, which meant a huge headache for them. You know, it was a, basically a two to three week process that entailed usually fermenting cacao either in a box inside uh, the producer's home or just outside their front door. Um, fermenting cacao, if you've ever smelt it or been around it, is not necessarily something that you want inside your house. Um, it attracts bugs, it has really strong smells. And then they were drying cacao on tarps, pieces of you know zinc roofing or other flat surfaces um, around the home. And so it was a real headache for producers to manage. Typically, these were subsistence farmers who had other crops to take care of. And so managing the post-harvest process was challenging. And then the quality of the product was also very inconsistent. And so no one had really done this centralized fermentation and drying in Belize before, we felt there was a great opportunity to, you know, help producers really learn and capitalize on um, the potential of flavor in that, in that cacao. And so it it worked, it took a a few years to really sort of build that up, but we ended up being, becoming the largest uh, exporter of cacao in Belize uh, within the first three years or so. And, you know, for producers, this was a huge win. Um, And, you know, farm gate prices were Uh, going up, they were able to sell cacao the same day they were harvesting it. And we were able to, you know, um, access 
what was at that time the burgeoning craft chocolate market. So our first customer was actually Master Brothers Chocolate. Um, they bought uh, some of that first container that we shipped up along with Taza. And then we also sold to uh, Dick Taylor, uh, Dandelion Chocolate, Rocka Chocolate, uh, Ritual Chocolate. Those were all sort of our initial uh, pioneer partners uh, for Maya Mountain in Belize, many of whom are still working with that bean today. And over the, the next few years, you know, the craft chocolate market exploded. Um, this movement just really gathered a lot of steam as craft chocolate operations started popping up in every single state in the U.S. and um, all over the world. And so for a lot of these new chocolate makers, they would go to Taza to ask, you know, Taza, where are you getting your beans? There was a lot of word of mouth sort of um, communication around where, where the beans come from and, and how to access them. And so Maya Mountain became the first sort of origin of choice for a lot of these new chocolate makers. But Belize is a really small country. You know, we were producing a couple containers of cacao per year, and there was very limited ability to grow that quickly. You know, cacao production is not like making widgets in a factory. Uh, you can't just sort of get more. <laughs> it takes many years for cacao trees to grow and, and bear fruit. So it became clear at that point that this model that we had developed we realized it was essentially a pilot in Belize was working, you know, producer annual revenues were increasing and producers were really motivated to plant cacao and uh, produce cacao for the first time in, in many years after, you know, experiencing a structure of an industry that didn't really work for them. And at the same time, we had a waiting list of dozens of chocolate makers who wanted to use this cacao. And we saw that, you know, this was really just the beginning of a movement that was going to grow quite a bit. So uh, in 2014, we expanded into Guatemala. Um, I started backpacking around uh, primarily Altavera Paz and uh, meeting with different producer associations and understanding sort of what the landscape uh, looked like. There was a lot more cacao just on the trees in Guatemala, but the exports in Guatemala, basically no one had been exporting specialty cacao out of Guatemala since essentially pre-colonial times um, or, you know, colonial times, um, pre-independence times. And so a lot of the cacao was being sold locally into El Salvador and Mexico, where there are very strong um, uh, chocolate markets as well. And so there was a huge opportunity uh, here. Um, a lot of the communities that I was meeting with had even in some cases uh, fermentation and drying infrastructure that had been built by uh, donor projects or government projects uh, over the years, but they had never had a market to use them. And so producers were, you know, harvesting, and then they were in many cases not even fermenting, they were washing the cacao, drying it on the side of the road and selling it to coyotes, who are the local intermediaries who drive around, you know, with a pickup and a scale and stack of cash and will buy whatever the producers have, whether that's cacao, coffee, corn, uh, cardamom, cinnamon, etc. So really volatile prices, zero quality control, zero transparency around the market, um, very low sort of economic motivation for cacao to, to be a real source of, of income. And yet there was cacao everywhere. Um, and cacao, as it does in Belize, formed such an important part of people's history and culture. Uh, in many cases in these communities, They're, they had been you know managing cacao farms that were passed down to them from their uh, grandfathers and and cacao was very much something they were consuming on a daily basis as well. So there was a lot of uh, interest from these communities in accessing an international market. We developed Cacao Verapaz there in uh, over the course of 2014 and started exporting to the U.S. as well. And so I lived in 
Central America in Belize and Guatemala from 2010 until 2017. And then Uncommon Cacao, which is probably what you're most familiar with uh, in terms of our U.S. operation, uh, got started in 2016. And um, that really formed as a mechanism for us to be able to directly offer the cacao that we were um, producing alongside the growers in Belize and Guatemala to chocolate makers, to our customers, and, and to be able to deliver uh, a, very much a continued you know, promise of uh, quality, transparency, customer service to the chocolate makers who were trusting in the product that we were, we were growing. You know, when we opened Uncommon Cacao in the U.S. in 2016, it also enabled us to start uh, opening up our sourcing to additional countries as well. And so the first countries we started working with um, outside of Belize and Guatemala were Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and Colombia. And today we're sourcing from over 7,000 um, smallholder producers across over 14 countries. Um, and we have operations in Belize, Guatemala, uh, the U.S., and Europe. So in 2021, we opened an office uh, in Europe serving our customers uh, on that continent. And is that model that you use with uh, Maya Mountain of kind of aggregating all of that post-harvest uh, processing into one place, is that what you use in most of these places or is there variance in how that sourcing works? In most of the cases, centralized post-harvest processing is, you know, the rule and is, is absolutely critical. You know, I think when you're talking about getting a consistent flavor profile and a consistent quality um, with the existing diversity of genetics and um, uh, farming practices that uh, are prevalent across so many different origins, having that centralized post-harvest processing enables that consistent quality. And so across, you know, in Belize and Guatemala, for sure, it's all centrally uh, fermented uh, and dried. And in most of the countries where we source, that is also the case. I will say in some countries, for different reasons, it's either illegal or impossible for that centralized processing to happen. Um, Ghana, for example, uh, is one place where we source where the cacao is still fermented and dried on individual growers' farms. And that is um, because in Ghana, the uh, industry is managed through a government entity called Cocobod, and Cocobod um, enforces that only dried cacao can be bought and sold. And it's bought and sold. It's basically purchased uh, by the government in Ghana and sold by the government. Um, and so uh, that, you know, in Ghana, we've been able to find amazing partners who are able to produce a really high quality and consistent cacao, um, even without that centralized post-harvest step. Um, and then in other places, for example, in Bolivia, where we source a wild harvested or gathered cacao, just the logistics of these chocolatales or very disperse uh, sort of groves of endemic cacao um, growing essentially wild in the uh, Bolivian Amazon. Um, a lot, they're very far away from each other. It's very remote. And so a lot of that is maybe, you know, a couple gatherers will work, work together on the fermentation and drying, but a lot of it is individually uh, fermented as well. And with the ethics concerns in global cacao, what do you do on the ground to be able to ensure that everybody's being taken care of along the, the path here? We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. 
Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Bar Stool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. Yeah, there's a ton of work that we put into um, sourcing standards and evaluation across our value chain. For us, the process of sort of onboarding a new supplier or a new partner usually starts with the cacao itself, like with, with a sample, we want to evaluate the bean. And then once we're, you know, all on board that this is something delicious, something that we think, you know, chocolate makers will really enjoy, our initial onboarding around the ethical standards starts. And so we have a supplier scorecard which has 55 indicators across social, environmental, governance, um, management factors, looking at both sort of positive screens and negative screens related to risk. So that's sort of the initial conversation. And that enables us to really dive into, okay, how are these issues being managed? Um, That's then followed by a field visit. So we will visit in person. We'll do sort of a, a field check on a lot of the different indicators and questions that are part of our scorecard. And then once we really feel like we've sort of gotten to know uh, the partner, gotten to know the growers as well. We'll always do uh, grower interviews and make sure that we're really listening to, you know, the actual producers themselves and not just the exporter or whoever the, you know, centralized fermentation partner might be. Then, you know, we start sort of our then ongoing process. So there's a supplier code of conduct that all of our partners have to sign, which covers um, labor standards, uh, which covers uh, our traceability and transparency requirements, which are probably the most stringent and um, sort of demanding of any uh, cacao trader in our industry and cacao production requirements around quality. And then, you know, we do a lot of annual transparency reporting as well. Each year we do essentially a revisiting of what's in the supplier scorecard and a deep dive into the specific numbers on producers uh, from each year. Um, so we look at everything from, you know, how labor standards are being trained on and managed uh, within each organization. We look at the participation of women in that value chain at the origin. We look at um, the uh, farm gate price and uh, if there's an association price, what that was, uh, the FOB price. Uh, we look at sales per producer so that we could actually calculate out annual revenue uh, for producers. Uh, we do a huge amount of work um, to make sure that by the time cacao, you know, lands in the warehouse imported by Uncommon Cacao, um, chocolate makers can can buy that cacao fully knowing that, you know, we have vetted um, the, the producers and the partner and that they're fully in line with Uncommon's values and ethical sourcing standards. That said, I really disagree with the generally, I think, promoted concepts that producers are essentially guilty until proven innocent, that, you know, we have all these global north standards and demands that we insist producers comply with and so 
you know, our goal with transparency reporting and with the vetting that we do with the supplier scorecard is really to understand our partners and their operations and their challenges as best as possible so that we can be the best partner that we can be to them. You know, of course, we want to make sure that, you know, there are no violations of human rights, you know, issues, there are no abuses of uh, individuals in any way uh, at that partner. Um, but I do think it's just, you know, we've gotten pushback actually recently on our transparency report data collection process this year, you know, where's this information from the chocolate makers? Why don't we know how much chocolate they're selling and how much money they're making? And so I don't disagree with that pushback. I think it is, transparency is amazing at how it can create these conversations and really enable dialogue on important issues. And, you know, through our transparency report, and we, we certainly have done that uh, in our industry, but I do think there's, there's a lot more room to grow in terms of what real two-way uh, transparency reporting could look like from chocolate makers in the industry, also back towards uh, growers and producers. Our reporting is demanding. You know, we look at, uh, along with the transparency reporting information each year, uh, our partners have to submit um, farmer receipts. So proof of farm gate price, uh, producer lists, uh, full traceability documentation, basically from the farm through the fermentation drying facility uh, into export lots. And increasingly, there are technological tools that are making this reporting easier, but it's still very early stage uh, on that in a lot of places. So much of this is still just being done by hand, and it's a huge lift um, for all of our partners and for us every year. But we do it because, again, Uncommon Cacao exists to you know, create systems change in our industry and demonstrate that it's possible to pay producers a higher price uh, for higher quality and really build a new system of valuing and trading cacao that's based on quality and based on flavor. So, um, you know, for us to do that in a way that is, uh, has integrity and is fully in line with our value of accountability, um, you know, the transparency reporting is just absolutely critical. At the size that Uncommon Cacao is now from the small beginning that you shared a little bit ago, how many makers are you working with now? So we're working with just over 300 makers around the world. We sell to chocolate makers, primarily in the U.S., about 70% of our partners on the chocolate making side are in the U.S., um, but we work with a growing number of chocolate makers in Europe where there's a huge boom of bean-to-bar craft chocolate um, happening. Um, we uh, sell to chocolate makers in China, Japan, Thailand, Australia, New Zealand, so all over the world. And do makers contract with you for future harvest, or is this kind of all on the spot market where they just say, I want this, do you have it? We do both. So usually about, I would say maybe 50% of our sales are uh, contracted ahead of time. And this is really helpful for us because it enables us to plan with producers. You know, we want to make sure that we have uh, what a chocolate maker needs available for them in the warehouse when they need it. And without that planning, it makes it really difficult for us to divinate their their needs uh, <laughs> and try to try to predict what they'll need. We do do a lot of that anyways because not everyone has the capacity to um, plan ahead you know a full year and maybe their business will grow quite a bit. So we always work in a certain you know amount of buffer stocks to to make sure that we have people covered. but yeah, we do we do both forward contracting and spot. Listening to Emily talk about the balance of contracting for cacao versus selling it on the spot market, I couldn't help but think about how similar this is to the hops market in beer. At a library beer class a couple weeks back, an attendee asked me how hop farmers know which varietals will be popular several years from now when the plants they put in the ground will be ready to produce. And that's a great question because it is, to some degree, a guessing game. 
The popularity of hop varietals changes with stylistic and consumer trends. Many breweries, especially larger ones, but all the way down to small local tap rooms, contract for their hop needs up to several years in advance, but they also have to purchase hops on the spot market based on shifting needs or plans. The more stability that can be planned in, the easier it is for farmers and hop suppliers to predict which varietals and how much of each they need to grow and process. It's startling how similar this is to what Emily has described with cacao. In the next segment, we discuss some of Uncommon's newest origins, including two from the Philippines. I've omitted the actual discussion of those Philippine origins because that section of our conversation was included in its entirety in episode 43 about rabid brewing. You might recall Bean to Barstool brewed a collaboration chocolate beer with Rabid called Crown of Horns that was the first beer ever brewed with Uncommon's new Philippine Malanabulong origin, which we sourced through Ethereal Confections. I'll include a link to that episode in the show notes if you want to hear more about these exciting new Philippine beans. Here's the rest of our conversation. So you recently brought on some exciting new origins. I saw you recently announced, I believe, a new Peruvian origin, and then you've got we a couple did. new from the Philippines. Yes, the chuncho cacao, which is this really cool. It's, it's So chuncho is actually a, a, its own genetic cluster. Um, so there was a study that came out by Motomayor in 2010, I believe it was, about 10 years ago, that started to identify these different uh, genetic clusters of cacao that sort of breaks apart this traditional notion of criollo, forestero, and trinitario as like, you know, the holy trinity of cacao genetics. Um, you know, it's pretty widely accepted at this point that that is not the case. There's so much more biodiversity and complexity. And so chuncho is a cluster of unique genetics. Uh, the bean size is quite small, so it's somewhat similar to the wild harvested Bolivia uh, that we currently source, but it's it's a really beautiful flavor profile. It's got notes of like fudgy brownies, so like a, again, a really nice chocolatey base note, which we have seen over the years, you know, especially having started in Belize and Guatemala, where the cacaos are really fruity, you know, Belize is like pineapple and raisin, Guatemala is like lemon and grapefruit and strawberry, you know, finding cacaos that are, you know, through both the genetics and the uh, post-harvest, you know, processing are really able to tap into a chocolate note, but also have the complexity around it. Like that it's just such a winning combination for chocolate makers, for brewers. Um, it's what the people want. And so we love when we find beans like that. And chuncho is certainly one of those. So yeah, the flavor notes are, you know, fudgy brownie, uh, cashew butter and orange blossom are sort of our headline, headline flavor notes. It has a really nice floral character that yeah, has this almost like light citrus note. So it's sort of like an orange blossom type of floral that super delicious. And, you know, there are some chocolate makers that we've been learning about that uh, sort of come out of the woodwork after we announced that we were starting to import this origin. They're like, oh my gosh, I only work with chuncho cacao. Like this <laughs> chuncho has a following because it is such a special um, bean. It's also grown at quite high altitude. It's not from the Amazonian part of Peru. It's from uh, closer to the Andes near Kiabamba. And so, yeah, it's just a really unique bean. It's a fantastic flavor profile and I can't wait to see it being used by chocolate makers. Do you have any origins on the horizon that you're able to share? Our supply chain manager was just down in Ecuador onboarding two new partners that we will be working with in Ecuador. It's cool because they both represent kind of different ends of the spectrum of, not ends of the spectrum, but different places on the, on the spectrum of what's happening in Ecuador. Um, Ecuador is one of the largest cacao producers in Latin America. And 
also such an important area for biodiversity and rainforest conservation. And so we're working with two different partners in Ecuador, one that's a sort of a fair trade, organic, really delicious, nacional sourced through a cooperative that is just from our visit there, from our, you know, onboarding conversations with them, it just goes so far and above um, beyond sort of what we've seen in terms of cooperative governance and, you know, working with its members. So we're really excited to be working with them. And then the other partner that we're working with is actually the first regenerative cacao operation. They've been doing regenerative production in cacao with their own regeneration or regenerative cacao sort of premiums uh, frame, framework for, I want to say, the last eight or nine years. Uh, so really ahead of the game when it comes to really intentionally incorporating biodiversity into cacao production and managing farms in a way that is focused on regeneration of soils um, and the environment, um, even you know far beyond what we would typically see in like organic standards, for example. So just um, really excited about those two new beans from Ecuador. It's been a little while since we've brought in cacao from Ecuador. So very excited about that. So what is your day-to-day -day like? Like if this is now a big operation, what does it mean for you to be running Uncommon Cacao on a daily basis? What do you do? <laughs> I mostly grow gray hairs. <laughs> I, uh, back in the day before I started this, I was an activist within the finance world. I was trying to help companies, you know, change and improve and, you know, really uh, leverage the power of business for good. And that is what I'm still trying to do here at Uncommon Cacao, even though we are now ourselves a tiny, very complex multinational corporation. And so I spend, you know, every day looks different. I do spend a lot of time managing our team. We have 19 folks on the team across four countries. You know, there are five languages spoken in our business every day. There are a lot of moving pieces and you know, we really are working from the farm level, you know, through to, you know, hundreds of chocolate factories every day. And so for me, it could be anything from, you know, working with some of the chocolate makers that we work with to, you know, plan for their upcoming, you know, product releases, make sure we have the beans that they need and, you know, that we're on the right page in terms of the release schedule and logistics. It could mean, you know, joining a supplier scorecard conversation and sort of making sure that we're asking the right questions and, and sort of diving deeper. Um, it could mean uh, working, you know, on finance and cash flow that, as you can imagine, is something I spend a lot of time on. You know, we're bringing in like 25 containers at least a quarter. And so just making sure that, I, you know, we collecting our accounts receivable so we can pay for the containers is, you know, it's, it's all, the, all the things. And yet I also do get to do some of the work that really brought me into this in the beginning as well as um, traveling myself. I was down in um, Belize. Uh, in April, I was down in Honduras in February, uh, I was going to Guatemala in January. And so uh, I am able to get down to, you know, visit our partners um, on the farms as well, fairly often. So talking about chocolate beers, I think most brewers who end up working with a bean to bar chocolate maker are probably indirectly often using your cacao because they're <laughs> getting it from their local chocolate maker who is getting it from you. Do you do any direct sale to breweries? Have you done any partnerships like that? We haven't. No, we, we don't process our own nibs. Um, it's something that we're looking at. And so, you know, if anyone is interested, please feel free to reach out. We can chat about it. But at this point, no, we, I mean, we work with a lot of chocolate makers who sell to breweries. So I know like Madari and French Broad are two companies that you've mm -hmm. spoken with quite a bit in the past. And you know, those guys are awesome. And, and they do a lot of work with breweries. Bisu Chocolate out in California sells to like Lagunitas, Fieldwork, uh, Ghost Town, 
Rots of Chocolate in Florida. Uh, they sell to Brighter Days Brewing. I think you've spoken with Sarah mm -hmm. uh, in the past. And then Ethereal Confections out of Illinois also does a ton of work with brewers, you know. And I actually, there's a um, chocolate company in Germany that buys from us that is also selling to brewers in Munich, uh, which was cool to learn about. So yeah, Higgins Aleworks and uh, Hopsylvania in Munich are both using Tumaco nibs. I have heard about Higgins Aleworks. I think they reached out to me about it. I haven't had a chance to try any of their beer though. Uh, so nice. hopefully one of these days I can track it down. What story is Uncommon Cacao telling? Uncommon Cacao is really telling the story of the power of connection. Every single bean that a chocolate maker uses in their factory sourced from us has been connected to so many different humans uh, and individuals across the value chain um, from you know, the grower, who picked the pod, scooped out the beans with his hand or her hand, you know, put it in a bag or a bucket, then dropped it off at the fermentation facility. And then there were, you know, fermentation and, and drying teams that very carefully and intentionally, you know, managed the fermentation and drying process. And then bean sorters and selectors, you know, administrative teams, and then um, warehouse teams and uncommon cacao. Like there are just so many different people involved in this value chain. And Uncommon has the immense privilege and responsibility of sharing that work um, and representing that work, you know, to chocolate makers and, and to the market. And so that is the story that we are always trying to tell is it's not about us. It's really about all of these people who are, you know, responsible for creating this amazing product, which is a product in itself. It's not just a raw material cacao itself. You know, there's so much work, there's so much love and so, so much intention that has gone into crafting that bean or that nib to taste and behave just the way that it does in the chocolate making process or in the beer making process. And so, you know, all of the work that we put into quality control, ethical sourcing, transparency reporting, uh, logistics, customer service, all of that is meant to contribute to when you get that bean or that nib in your hand in your factory, like you just feel that love, you feel that intention, you feel the focus on quality and that that then transforms into a product that will captivate and enamor the people who try it. You know, I think that's how this will really work in the long run. This is how we build a, a real change in the cacao industry and in the chocolate industry is by helping people fall in love with the beauty of chocolate and the beauty of cacao and thus having the desire to dive deeper, the interest in learning more, that drive for connection to where this product really comes from. Um, because there's so much education that still has to happen uh, to the consumer. And I think we just have to start from that place of, this is so delicious. I love it. I want more of it. And I want to know, I want to know more about it. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing some of your story with us today, Emily. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real honor and privilege to be here. Despite the relatively large size of Uncommon Cacao, the company is still about individual people, places, flavors, and stories. In every episode, I ask chocolate makers or brewers what story their creations are telling, and it's amazing to think of how many of those stories involve the stories Emily Stone and her partners through Uncommon Cacao are telling. I'll put links to the Uncommon Cacao website and social media platforms in the show notes. Thanks again to Emily for coming on the show, and to all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Beamed Barstool. Mm -hmm.